You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, hello, strong, feisty women. Okay, so I have a mind-bending and literally brain-building show for you today. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Dr. Stacy Sims, who many of you know, uh, I have helped put her work into the world through books like Roar and Next Level. And anyway, Stacy sends me an email making a connection for the show here with neurophysiologist Louisa Nicola who sits on the Tonal Advisory Board with Stacy and is also the founder and CEO of a company called Neuroathletics, where she consults with professional athletes in the NBA and others and works with billionaire business folks and other entrepreneurs. And man, this woman is a volcano of cognitive health and performance knowledge. I love, love, loved this conversation. Because we spend a whole lot of time here talking about our muscles and our bones and our heart and our hormones, and we train our strength and we train our endurance, but nothing happens. We don't clean that barbell. We don't cross that finish line. We don't really accomplish anything physical without first having the mental ability that comes from command central in our brain. So brain health is more than thinking clearly and avoiding cognitive disease, which of course is super duper important. And we talk all about that, but it's also homing in on your best performance, no matter what your age. So we go deep into exercise and nutrition and supplemental strategies that you can take for your best brain health. If you are not already convinced about the importance of strength training, I promise you the research that she presents in this episode will push you over the edge. She also talks a lot about cutting edge science here She presents research that mature adult humans actually can't grow new neurons, which is a very recent scientific debate that I was not aware of and kind of blew my mind. So I will drop some of those studies in the show notes for the science nerds in the crowd. But, but, but it's also important to note that you can very much and you should take strategies to optimize the structure and function of your brain, which you can certainly do. She talks also about ketones, which was really interesting to me. I know endurance athletes have used them like in the Tour de France. And I know that there are people who try to follow the ketogenic diet for brain health reasons, but it's super difficult to stay in ketosis and active women need carbs. But it's interesting that you can get a lot of those benefits from taking supplemental ketones. Very interesting research. I will also put some links in that in the show notes as well for those who are interested. Uh, Louisa herself was formerly a world championship triathlete, and she raced both nationally and internationally for Australia and competed at London, Beijing, and Auckland. After retiring in 2012, she went on to Sydney Medical School and studied neurophysiology. Today, she is the head performance advisor and CEO of Neuroathletics, and that company is on a mission to optimize mental performance and to help educate, train, and unlock human performance through science and data with a commitment to optimizing your potential. You can follow Louisa and all of her cutting-edge work through her neuroathletics newsletter on Substack, 
and on Instagram and Twitter. I will link all that up in the show notes as well. All right, before we get to it, a quick reminder to head on over to feistymenopause.com and subscribe to my weekly newsletter or blog if you haven't already. Each Thursday, we bring you the latest on health and fitness and hormones, so check that out. As always, you can find us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. You can join our ever-growing private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group and be part of our conversations there. If you'd like to reach me, I have an email, and that is hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. And as always, if you like the show, please share it with your friends and on your social media channels. This show continues to grow in what is a very crowded podcast space, and it's all because of you guys, and I appreciate it. I also appreciate the hearts and the stars and the great reviews, so thank you for those as well. Speaking of thanks, super quick thanks to Velarosa for their continued support of the show. I will be rocking their Cheetalicious print shorts at my Gravel Metric Century this weekend. And I love how comfy and super stylish they are. So thanks for your continued support of the show. Oh, and before I forget, this week marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which is the landmark anti-sex discrimination legislation that passed in the U.S. in 1972, opening doors for girls and women in high school and college sports, including yours truly, and I'm sure many of you. The team that helps me bring you Hit Play Not Pause has put together a really cool series celebrating this anniversary called Nine Voices for Title IX. Each of the feisty media hosts, including me, interviews iconic athletes, athletic directors, and more about how the legislation impacted the world of women in sport. I am super stoked to be part of this. I got to interview an MMA fighter, Amanda Levy, as well as the winner of the first Tour de France for Women, Marianne Martin. And I learned a ton along the way from all of these great interviews. I highly recommend you checking it out. Just go to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts to have it downloaded each week into your feed. All right. Enough of me. Let's have a word or two about our awesome sponsors and get on with the interview. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, 
plus even more cutting edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Okay, well, I am so excited to talk to you, Louisa, because this is like a conversation that this topic is just so interesting to me and your work is so interesting to me. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of your book, your podcast, everything about what you guys are doing. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, let's let's give our audience a little introduction of how you got into the work that you do, like how you got into this world. Because my understanding is that you were quite the elite athlete and then you had a very life-changing pivot early, early in your career. Correct. So born and raised in Australia. And if you know anything about us Aussies, we've always grown up around the ocean. So I was always a good swimmer growing up. So um, I and a very competitive person, I ended up becoming a triathlete at a young age. So um, swim, bike, run. And I got picked up, you know, during my triathlon days by an elite triathlete coach. So I was on the Australian team. I was a a full-time triathlete training 40 hours a week. And Celine, if you know anything about triathlons, you know that these types of endurance events require more than just physical endurance and stamina, they require something called brain endurance. Um, you know, the, the ability to just keep pushing forward. Um, so that's what I did. I spent my youth years and my, my early twenties training and I qualified for Beijing. I also qualified for London and it was right before, uh, right before Beijing, I went out for a, a ride and I was hit by a car. Um, traveling at 100 kilometers per hour. I was traveling at 40 kilometers per hour. Um, My teammates and I were smashed. I was the one who got hit. I was at the back of the line. So I was pushed up against a guardrail and it was pretty much the end of my career. So I did take a big, big pivot, which now I look back in that, you know, in hindsight, and it was probably the best thing for me because I was completely obsessed with my sport. I had this unwavering thirst to be number one in the world. So if I didn't do that, I probably, if I, that didn't happen to me, who knows where I would have been right now. How old were you at the time? I was 24 when that happened. 24. Yeah. And then what happened after that? So I, I had already finished my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees. And at this time we had a, I was still going to all of my team trainings with a with a broken leg and, and my crutches. And my coach said, Louisa, we have a very important person coming from Colorado. It was Usain Bolt's running coach. 
And he came and he was doing a a session with my teammates and he asked me what happened. And he said, do you feel like you're ever going to get back on the bike again? I said, no, I said, I'm too scared. And he talked to me about brain training. He said, you've just got to rewire your brain to get back on the bike. And, you know, at this time, this was more than, this was 10 years ago. You know, people weren't really talking about the brain. I didn't really know too much about the brain. And he hooked me up to this thing. He took me, you know, into his office and he hooked me up to this thing that I had no idea what it was at the time. And I had all these electrodes in my head coming out of my head. He had this cap on me and he took me through a triathlon. Okay. And he scanned my brain, took me through a triathlon in my head, which is a two hour event. Were you watching anything on the screen or just imagining it? Just imagining it. Okay. And he had, um, you know, he had music playing and he had people screaming like, you know, and it really, and when you looked at the EEG scan, some of the things found that I was actually mimicking, my brain was mimicking what was happening during an actual event. And I fell in love with it. He showed me the report and I absolutely just, I was in awe of, of this machine that was able to pick up on my brainwave activity. So it was my very first time seeing an EEG. So I went back to Sydney Medical School, uh, Sydney University, and I completed my degree. I majored in neurophysiology, which is literally the figuring out how the brain functions mm. via an EEG. And so that's how I got to where I am today. That's the long-winded story. No, it's a great story. What does EEG stand for and what is it actually doing? So an EEG is stands for an, an electroencephalogram. So you put a cap on your head and it measures the brainwave activity. So you've heard of alpha, beta, gamma brainwaves. So these, these brainwaves oscillate at different timeframes in different areas of the brain. And this type of machine is primarily used in epilepsy wards. So because when you think about epilepsy, it's a disruption in the brain waves and the connectivity in your brain. So we use an EEG. We also use them in sleep studies to figure out when a patient is asleep and what sleep cycles they're going through. So when I was, you know, during my training, I was seeing a lot of Alzheimer's disease patients and I was picking up on early onset Alzheimer's disease. I was also picking up on mild cognitive impairment with the use of an EEG. So It takes around 20 to 30 minutes in EEG. We do it with your eyes closed and with your eyes opened. And, you know, what was really interesting to me at the time was I'd done like a thousand scans. And when you look at the pathology or the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease, okay, we see see plaques and tangles and we see phosphorylation of this protein called tau protein, which accumulates in the brain and evidently it, it forms plaques and tangles in your brain at the time I wasn't heavily involved in the athletic space, but when you look at the pathology of something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, this is, this is a disease caused by multiple concussions. And we can only really diagnose CTE when somebody has passed away and you cut open their brain, which is why we have brain banks. But when you look at the pathology of that, it's also the phosphorylation of tau proteins. So I thought, I asked my attending at the time, I said, is there any ability to pick up on CTE with an EEG scan? And he was like, I don't know. He's like, just stick to your job. But I I thought this was just, you know, unbelievably exciting. So I started to research and 
I was starting to ask questions and this was in 2000 and I would say 16, I was asking questions. Why isn't the NFL scanning brains? Why isn't, why isn't there a brain training program in the NBA? Why are neurologists not servicing these massive corporations? So I started to go out and, you know, put myself out there. I had a hospital grade EEG at my disposal. So I started to recruit New York Jets players. I'd moved to New York City and I started to talk to these players and just ask them, hey, can I scan your brain? They thought I was insane. And I did. And I and I found out a lot, which is why I, I don't work in the NFL currently and I am against it. Wow. Mm. Wow. Okay. That's that 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 says a lot. Yeah, I mean, because I know that you have this company now that is called Neuroathletics, right? And that's this is correct. Yeah. Um, so that ex- sort of explains how you got at this intersection of of athletics and neuroscience. Yeah. That's so neuroathletics literally is the intersection of neuroscience and athletic performance. And right now, and which is fantastic in 2022, there's a lot of people understanding about the brain that 10 years ago, people would look at me and think, you want to talk about the brain? No, we need our players out there working on their speed. We need them out there working on their stamina. When you look at physiology and neurophysiology is the combination of neurology and physiology. Okay, how the brain communicates with the body and the disruption in that process. And you think everything is neural first, Celine. The brain comes first. The brain is what directs you, directs your arm to throw a ball. The brain is what sees a ball coming towards you. It's not your arm. Your arm doesn't see it. It's it's the eyes. The eyes are connected to the brain. And then it shoots down messengers to the arms and the legs to perform an action. So there's still this mystery and I'm, I'm still trying to advocate for the fact that it's always brain first. So we should be working on this hardware inside our skull instead of working on, on the body. So when you say that, do you mean that you are, and you probably mean both things, but I'll ask, are you, are you working on the physical health of the brain? Because we've talked about tangles. We've talked about like the physical structural health of the brain, but then I am also hearing the function of the brain, which is related to that, but also maybe different, right? That is completely true. So what we work on is both the functionality of the brain and the structural aspect of the brain. So when I say structure, we now have clear clinical evidence in human studies that we can change the structure of our brain, meaning you can grow areas of your brain through different types of nutritional interventions and exercise interventions. So the structure is I'm talking about the size and the shape. When I talk about the functionality, I'm talking about how well does your brain function, meaning your cognitive processes, information processing speed, reaction time, memory. Can we improve those? And it turns out we can, which is why I exist. For example, <laughs> I um, I work with some of the best teams and, and players in the world. And if I can get these players to react 0.1 second faster to a ball, that is the difference between going to the World Series and not going to the World Series. That is so exciting. I find all of this so exciting. That's really, really cool. So so, so for our audience, because now we, now we're going into, you know, as you know, we have like this active athletic menopausal 
audience. And there's a lot going on there, you know, with the brain that we're just like scratching the surface of understanding, right? It just, just beginning to scratch. So maybe what's the best way to go about this? Maybe talk about brain aging broadly. Um, and then we can segue into how menopause might fall into this picture and then help us make all this healthy and, and as sharp as it can be. Yeah. I love the brain aging process, meaning that I'm going to go very low, low level, just, uh, you know, so everybody in, in your audience can really feel the way I feel and, and understand this approach. So as we get older, our brain ages, just like our body, it's natural. Now we have theories of aging. We actually have these different theories. There's about 12 theories that have been posed around the brain aging process and three really stand out to me. So we'll delve into those. The first thing is we have one theory, which is as we age or as our brain ages, we have white matter changes. So we have in our brain, we have gray matter, we have white matter and white matter is underneath the gray matter. You see the cortex of the brain. Okay. That's the gray matter. Now frontal lobe, you see the lobes, that's the gray matter. Underneath that is white matter. And if you cut open a brain, you can literally see the difference in colors and the white matter houses all of our myelinated neurons. Okay. So, so this theory suggests as we age, we get lesions in the white matter of our brain. What does that mean? Well, when we think about that, that's where we think about how our speed of processing information declines, okay? So that's the first theory, that we get white matter lesions as we age. Now, at the age of 25, our brain is pretty much fully developed. So that's when we really have to, you know, start to make a change at 25 years old. And then it just starts to, you know, it starts to accelerate after that at around, I would say at around 40, that starts to accelerate for women, depending on menopause, it might accelerate even more. So that's the first one. The second theory suggests that we have a dysregulation in dopamine receptors. So dopamine is the molecule that is responsible for motivation and drive and goal setting. So it's that thing that gets us up in the morning to achieve our goals. And this theory states that just as a natural process of getting older, our dopamine declines and it declines in the frontal part of the brain called our frontal lobe. So that's also scary too, because I always bring up the fact that I'm in Australia right now and, and my dad is 70 and my mom is 65. And every time I say to them, guys, come on, we're getting up, we're going for a walk. They're like, I've got no motivation, which is normal, okay? It's normal to lose this motivation and these dopamine receptors as we age. And then the third theory of aging, of the aging brain aging process, states that we get cognitive decline just due to neurodegeneration, hmm. okay? So these are three theories now that, that, that I've just outlined in the brain aging process. So we all, we're all going to experience them as we age. So I'm pausing now just to, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. So you would, you had sort of mentioned menopause and that whole pr process, but what does, where does menopause fall into this picture? I mean, we've, we've seen some really interesting work coming out of, you know, Dr. Lisa Moscone 
showing some of those scans that the white and gray matter does change during the perimenopausal transition. And for most women, it seems to adapt to the loss of estrogen and change back, but not all. Um, yeah. So what, what is happening there? And we, we see like so much of it, the brain fog and the moods and like the motivation, like all the things you say seem to also be impacted during this transition. Yeah. And menopause, you know, we're looking at what early fifties. Okay. So I've seen studies of um, interventions happening with hormone therapy, suggesting that the earlier you get on this, you know, hormone therapy or hormone replacement therapy is going to be better off for your cognition. But what we're seeing is literally a change in the environment of the hormones of these neurohormones that are being secreted when they're suppressed. Obviously we've got hormones for a reason when they're suppressed or they're just not being released. Evidently we're going to have things such as, cognitive decline. We're going to have things such as the acceleration of, I won't say Alzheimer's disease, because I'm going to bring up that in a moment, but we do see the, the loss of our basic cognitive functions just due to this uh, decline in the amount of hormones that are being released, estrogen being the one of them. Now, what I failed to mention before any of this was we now have the ability to test our genetics. And I think we're not talking about this enough because it's not enough to just say, well, you're going to get Alzheimer's disease if you don't do X, Y, and Z. The best thing for anybody to do, okay, when they're starting off on any program, health program, doesn't matter what age you are or your listeners, even if you are scared about, if you're perimenopause, even if you're scared about, you know, all of these hormones, the best thing we can do is just outline what is our genetic makeup. Okay. So we have 20,000 genes in the human genome. And sometimes when we, you know, we get, we've got two alleles, one from mom, one from dad. If we are already born with a certain type of genetic SNP, let's just say I, I was born and I've got an APOE4 allele. That means then just say, I've just got one just from mom, which I don't, but let's just say I do that then predisposes me. I now know that I am predisposed to Alzheimer's disease due to this polymorphism. So I can then put into place if I'm 25, if I'm 30, I can then put into place interventions to stop that. That will also mean that when it comes time, when I'm 50 or 48, whenever I'm going into menopause, I can plan ahead for it. And I can choose whether I want to go down the hormone replacement therapy, whether I don't. So that's something that we need to point out because I'm seeing that in the science world and in the medicine academia world where we're not talking about it enough. People are just dosing themselves up with vitamin D and, and stress B complex and all of these vitamins without really understanding their genetic code. Is there a point at which that's too late? Like, I mean, my audience is not 25 or 35, they're 45. The, that's you know, wonderful. Whatever. Yeah. Because your genes, you have them, but here's the thing. We're all born with the genes. We're all born with these polymorphisms. For example, there's a polymorphism um, in the TNF alpha. So tumor necrosis alpha gene, which I don't want to go too much into it, but this, we know if you do have this allele, you're predisposed to ischemic strokes. Okay. So there's many different genes that we can test. So in saying that your, your, your genes are not the end of your story, they're really only 10% of it. I was going to ask just before we leave that is like, how easy is that to get tested? 
Oh, it's easy. You can go and just get a, you know, there's a 23 and me test. Okay. Um, I was going to ask yeah. if that was one of them. Okay. Yeah. 23 and me. Um, I've, I've got a company that we outsource to, it's called wild health. Um, and they, you know, they're fantastic. I trust their algorithms a lot more than the 23 and me, but they're wonderful. So they do full blood and they also do genetics. So you can go and test them out. You can just figure out who are you really? So then let's just say we've got that, but here's the catch. 90% currently 2022, 90% of Alzheimer's disease patients have the non-genetic form. 90%. So that's scary. So what does that mean? Well, that means we now have to talk about epigenetics. That is the ability to change your genetic code through the environment. So we can accelerate ourselves to brain disease, pathologies, diseases through the environment. So it's not just about our genes, but the genes do say something. Once we know those, then we can then start to put these interventions into place. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. 
The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Two questions. Um, what is your feeling on hormonal therapy for menopause? I mean, certainly there's the research is ongoing. We're learning so much about like the window of opportunity for it. That seems to be, it seems to be important. Not everybody can or wants. And I'm always cautious. Like I don't want my audience, people who like, I have a friend who has high risk for Alzheimer's, but she also is not a good candidate for hormones. Like, is she doomed? You know, I mean, which she sometimes feels this way when people start talking about hormones that she can't access, you know, so what are the, like, where do you stand with that? And then let's please talk about all these other interventions that you're talking about. You're not doomed. And it's scary because when it comes to it, you know, when it comes to medicine, everything is so individualized. You just mentioned that she's not a good candidate for hormone replacement therapy, but can I ask you what, and this may be for your audience as well, what are they most afraid of? She is most afraid of Alzheimer's. Her mother had early Um, onset. Okay. All right. And whether, let's just say your friend didn't, uh, let's just say she doesn't have the genetic coding. Okay. Um, let's just say she does or she doesn't. So let's start there. Let's start with what you're fearful for instead of thinking it's the be all and end all, because it's actually not. You have the chance, and it doesn't matter what age you are, to rewire and reshape your brain via three interventions. Okay. So it's not the be all and end all. There is a window of opportunity. However, it's not for everybody. Just because you are a female doesn't mean hormone replacement therapy is for you. Okay. Everybody's different. So let's just talk to the people who maybe not wanting to take, and even if you are taking it, okay, what do we got? How can we change our brain so we can starve off Alzheimer's disease? Let's talk about something that I know that you're, you're passionate about. I'm going to talk about nutrition. I'm going to talk about sleep and I'm going to talk about exercise. So you said your, your audience as well is, is very into exercise, correct? Oh yeah. <laughs> what type of exercise are they into? Uh, we have all kinds of people. I mean, it is largely an endurance crowd. I will tell you that, you know, a lot of try, yeah, lots of triathletes, lots of ultra runners, gravel cyclists, CrossFit enthusiasts. We have rock climbers, surfers. I could go on and on. Like it's a very rad bunch of women. It, it, the bend seems to be largely endurance, but they are all very into also uh, a lot of them into lifting heavy shit, <laughs> so to speak. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. That's good. So here's the th- reason why I asked that. Endurance training is wonderful. Okay. So when we talk about exercise, we're talking about you've either got aerobic or you've mm-hmm. got resistance training. Now, what we can see from the literature is we now have ed- evidence that we can change the structure of our brain and the functionality of our brain via exercise alone. And if you will allow me, I want to take you through a a bit of a timeline in history to show you in terms of exercise and brain health, how we got here today. All right. 1999, the first studies were performed on the relationship between exercise and brain health. In 1999, the first study was done on mice and what they did was they put them through daily aerobic activity. 
okay, literally running on a treadmill. What they found was that the mice who performed daily activity grew twice as many neurons in the hippocampus. We know the hippocampus is that area of the brain um, that stores our memory and and there's memory formation. It kind of looks like a seahorse. So they found in 1999 that you can grow new neurons, essentially making the hippocampus bigger. That's huge, right? Fast forward to 2017. The next study was done in this area concluded that engaging in aerobic physical activity starves off Alzheimer's disease by 20 years. 20 years. That's pretty, that's pretty insane. Yeah, it is. Is that BDNF? BDNF is a growth factor, okay, yeah. brain-derived neurotropic growth factor, which was responsible for these changes. Now, I mentioned earlier in 1999 that they saw neurogenesis, the creation of new neurons. I want to be really clear to your audience, this doesn't exist in humans, Okay. Neurogenesis does not exist. We cannot, as adults and as humans, we cannot grow new neurons. What we can, yes, it's only been, um, it's only in um, in mice models. So these two studies were done in mice. Okay. So what is happening in humans? We're not. We're not there yet. Okay. Okay. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll be getting too excited. Go, right. Yeah, I've got to go through my timeline. So okay. we're up to 2017 now. Here we go. 2019, there was a wonderful systematic review done by Harold et al. He was like, you know, there's all this talk about BDNF. The 2000s was all about BDNF, BDNF, BDNF. And we know that it is secreted tenfold via aerobic activity. But in 2019, he thought, I'm going to, a systematic review, he pulled together all of the studies that have been done on physical activity and brain health. And he had a special interest on resistance training because no one was really studying that. What he found was that resistance training had more of an effect on the brain than aerobic activity. Really? So that was the start of a new phenomenon. He found that resistance training was better at changing the structure of the brain and changing the functionality of the brain, which goes back to our brain aging theories. Okay. Um, and I'll talk about why. And then I'd be remiss if I did not discuss that in 2021, which was literally just last year, there was an RCT done, an RCT randomized control trial. It is the gold standard of, of academic research. It was done on humans, by the way, the first one on humans, that they took a group of mild cognitive impairment patients. So MCI is a pre-dementia state. So they got humans, okay? They took them through um, aerobic physical activity, and they also put them through resistance training. What they found was that after six months of res resistance training, they grew new connections in the hippocampal subregions. Oh, interesting. Connections, not neurons. So let's talk about let's talk about resistance training. Why is there a difference? Okay. So Resistance training releases various myokines. So myokines are muscle-based proteins and they have a direct impact on the metabolic and endocrine pathways in the body, which means that they are acting in a, in a direct, they have a direct impact on the brain and cognitive functions and an indirect impact. So when you are doing any form of resistance training, let's just take a, a leg press for example, or a squat, 
you're getting a massive, massive release of these muscle-based proteins. One of these, for example, is IGF-1, insulin growth like factor one. So it's secreted from the muscle, okay, and it activates these signaling pathways and these signaling pathways act on receptors in the brain, okay, and they enhance cognitive, cognitive functions such as memory, thinking, reaction time. So that's just IGF-1 and you get a rapid release. You don't get this type of release through um, aerobic activity. That's the first one. Then what happens is we have a massive rapid release of this wonderful, wonderful hormone called irisin. It was only for, it was only discovered in 2012. Irisin, it's actually named after the Greek god Iris. Uh, she's a, a messenger to the gods. And this is what irisin does. Irisin is released rapidly and it crosses, Celine, the blood-brain barrier, which is huge. So we don't get a release of irisin really in any other way. So when you're doing any form of resistance training, you get this rapid release of irisin. It goes into the brain and it has effects on the structure of the brain, so that white matter area. So you can literally change the function and the structure of your brain by resistance training alone. And I keep saying that, I keep pushing for it because from a hormonal perspective, just, for your, just as an FYI, 80% of brain gray matter is modifiable by physical activity. 80%. You can modify your brain through physical activity alone. And if you're thinking which one, there's pros to both, but if you are in that sector where you're aging and you're scared about your brain, you only have a limited time. You only have to do three, three days per week of resistance training to get these effects. There's also other ones. There's um, cathepsin B and interleukin 6, um, which also act on these brain receptors. And when I'm talking about a release, I'm not talking about a 10%. I'm talking like a 240% increase in release of these hormones. Just blew my mind. <laughs> I thought so. Yeah, I was like, my, I, was I feel for like that, you know. my brain, my brain just grew three sizes just listening to you talk. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's beautiful to see. So, um, you know, I get asked often, Louisa, can you pick up on Alzheimer's disease with uh, neuroimaging? Yeah, so I use an EEG primarily, but I've looked at you know MRIs, and you can definitely get a PET scan, which can you know which can show you if you've got Alzheimer's disease. And what I'm advocating for, for a lot of women is to go and push your doctor, your, your GP into getting a PET scan. I don't know how it really, you know, I think you have to push for it in, in America to go and get one of these, but go and, and early interventions is always best, you know, mm-hmm. go and get a PET scan because now we know that with a brain PET scan, we can pick up on pre-dementia states. So you can pick up on if you have these pre-dementia states, okay? But in saying that, you can always work on your brain and it starts today. It's never too late. So what would be your, what would be your next one? Well, why don't we talk about sleep? Okay. Huge proponent of sleep. I, I love it. I, I live it. I breathe it. Sleep is the most high-performance tool that we have and it's very underrated we're now starting to understand more about it 
you know, I'll bring up another study just to clearly, you know, outline how I feel about sleep. There was one study on humans, 2019, very, very early. So they took a group of healthy adults and they deprived them. It was actually in a very high stringent journal, PNAS. They deprived them of sleep for six hours a night, six hours a night, which if you live in New York City, most people are like, yeah, Louisa, that's normal for me. They did that for one week. And what they found was that there was a 3% change in their genome, 3%. So if we've got around 20,000 genes, you've changed around 750 genes just by sleep depriving yourself. What, what type of genes were responsible in this, in this change? Well, they found that half of the genes that were responsible for tumor growth were upregulated. And the genes responsible for immunity were downregulated just by getting six hours of sleep per night for one week. That's petrifying, right? Yeah. So what other changes do we see? Well, unfortunately, when it comes to neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases such as the dementias, and dementia is the umbrella term for um, you know, all of these other Alzheimer's disease and uh, frontotemporal dementia, it's, a, it's like a cycle. It's this bi-directional cycle, meaning less sleep means less accumulation, uh, less clearage, I would say, of these toxins, such as tau proteins and other, other types of toxins. Therefore, you are accelerating yourself to Alzheimer's disease and building up these towels and plaques and tangles. Therefore, these towels and plaques and tangles are going to prevent you from sleeping. So it's this, you know, in Alzheimer's disease patients, they're already, they're having trouble sleeping because of the metabolism and, and the toxins in their brain that are building up. But it's also, if you have a clear brain, but you're depriving yourself of sleep, you're going to get there anyway. Right. I wrote about, and I, I would love you to talk about a little bit if, if this is relevant. And I think it is. I wrote about the glymphatic system a few years ago, uh, which, which again, blew my mind when I, when I dug into it and interviewed people about it. And that, that seems to be a key part of what you're saying here, because that's when your brain takes out the trash, so to speak, right? It is. It's a serious. So the glymphatic system was, uh, it was very recently found in the last 25 years, I believe. I forget the year exactly. But scientists were like, you know, we have this lymphatic system in our body, this clear, you know, this, this kind of sewerage system. And what they found was they put these subjects, they started on mice evidently first, um, rodents, and they put them through MRI. So when I talk about, just FYI, when I talk about EEGs, I don't have the ability to see with an EEG, that's just function. We, we don't have the ability to see blood and vasculature. The right. MRIs is for the, the vasculature of that. So when you, when you put a patient through an MRI, you can see what's happening in their brain. What they found was when they put, when a, when a mice goes into sleep, when a mouse goes into sleep and they access this deep sleep state, it's called N3 stage sleep. And we can go through the stages later on. N3 stage sleep, which is our deepest sleep. The neurons in the brain, the specific neurons are the glial cells, Okay. Glia, named after the Greek word for glue. By the way, could you tell I was Greek? Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is they shrink and they shrink so the cerebral spinal fluid 
has a chance to clear out. So it's like a sewage system. So the cerebral spinal fluid goes through and as it clears out, your brain, it takes together all of the toxins that have been built up through the day. Toxins such as inflammation, okay? Toxins that's built up from what you eat, the food you ingest, the lack of exercise, the lack of sunlight, the environmental factors, they all just build up and accumulate. And when these glial cells shrink during this deep sleep state, it has a chance to clear out this system. So then you wake up, you feel refreshed. And every day your brain is like, okay, I'm clean. I'm ready to go. But what happens is if we are not optimizing for sleep, we're not getting into that deep sleep stage. So therefore, we're not activating the glymphatic system. And if we're not doing that, we wake up with brain fog. Okay, we wake up and we're not feeling quite the best. We're not, we don't have that clarity. And you may think, well, okay, it's just one day. But what happens if this just, if we don't take out the trash every day? It piles up. And it starts to have an effect even more so. And it gets to the point where the brain is like, you know what? You've created too much trash in my brain. I'm just going to store it here in a clump. And I'm not going to let anything pass. I'm going to have lack of um, uh, lack of blood flow, lack of oxygen. I'm just going to, you know, and I'm going to do it right here in the brain that's responsible for kind of, you know, what you think about and how you form memories. So it's going to clump there and then it's going to go into the next part of the brain. And then that's how we have, you know, loss of neuronal function along the way. So glymphatic system is huge. So again, I, I want to just give a little interlude here that I am having a menopausal sleep specialist on very soon. So we can talk about because menopause does really impact. I mean, that's one of the big things. It's, 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 there's a lot of sleep disruption, that happens um, during this time. So I can, I can hear a lot of people, again, panicking out there that their brains are becoming filled with trash. Your, <laughs> your panic comes from just, you know, when you feel like you don't have enough knowledge and education is the way forward, which is what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And nothing is the end of the story unless you have been given a diagnosis for a terminal illness that cannot be reversed. And unfortunately that does happen. Um, So right now you do, you don't have to be fearful because there are ways that you can either stave off ASMCs or improve your sleeping. So more than happy to to, to discuss those as well. Yeah, no, I'd love to. I mean, what your thoughts, I mean, we, we talked a bit about those stages of sleep. So what, what stages are most important there? I heard deep sleep. I heard N3, I think. And like what sets the stage for that? Yeah. So when we fall asleep, okay, so we have four stages of sleep, okay? As we start to fall asleep, we're in stage N1. Now, N stands for non-REM. We have REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. We've got non-REM. And the first three stages, so we start to fall asleep. It's light sleep. We're in N1. Then we're asleep. So that's n two. Okay. And then when we get to N3, which happens around 90 minutes, depending on how tired you are in sleep, N3 is our, is non-rapid eye movement sleep. It's our deep sleep. Now what happens during N, N3 sleep? We have the activation of the glymphatic system. We also have the release of our wonderful hormones. You know, men have the, the release of testosterone, women, estrogen. So the, and we also have a release of IGF-1. 
Okay. So IGF-1, we mentioned it earlier, it's responsible for protein synthesis and muscle regeneration. So if you're not getting into deep sleep, had a really hard workout that day, if you're an athlete or you're not going to be getting the benefits because you're not, if you're not activating this pathway during N3 sleep. So that's, that's the first three stages. Then what happens is we go into rapid eye movement sleep. This is the difference when we're in a sleep study and we have electrodes hooked up on the eyes and everywhere over the brain, you see on the machine, you see these horizontal eye movements. So your eyes are actually going like horizontal and we see these massive waves like this, fast oscillations. So your brain is during REM sleep, your brain is pretty much awake, but you are completely paralyzed from the neck down. Okay. It mimics an awake patient. Whereas if you look at the EEG on a deep sleep patient, you're seeing these massive, massive waves. Okay. These big, beautiful waves, very different. Your brain's completely shut off. During REM sleep, we get a lot of our memory formation and neuroplasticity exists during that stage. So we need to be optimizing for sleep no matter what. What are we doing wrong though? You may be thinking, well, Louise, I've been sleeping since I was born. But really, sometimes we're not just sleeping, we're just sedating ourselves. For example, I've heard a lot of people mention that wine puts them to sleep when in actual fact, the active ingredient in wine, which is ethanol, it blocks you from getting these deep sleep stages and REM sleep. It completely sedates you. In fact, that's what it is. It's like, you know, when you go into surgery, you have this, it's sedative, it's uh, called propovol and it puts you, you know, it completely sedates you. So the surgeon can cut. Uh, this is exactly to an extent what alcohol does, you know, it sedates you. So it doesn't put you into sleep. It kicks you out of sleep. So you may be sedated during the night, but you're not activating these deep sleep stages and this REM sleep. Another thing that has an effect is light. Okay. Mm. So when we view light at any time of the night, you're signaling to your brain that you're awake. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, if your brain thinks you're awake, it's not going to put you into deep sleep. It's going to be releasing cortisol, which basically activates the sympathetic nervous system, which says to you, Hey, Louisa, we're awake. We need to go and get food and run away from the tiger. So that's something that also disrupts our sleep processes. Then we've got other things such as what food are you eating? Some types of food can disrupt the sleep process. Some types of medications, you know, we've got a lot of patients who have, um, we know that SSRIs like antidepressants uh, kick you out of REM sleep specifically. So again, very individualized. And then the timing of sleep, are you going to sleep at 1 a.m.? Are you waking up during the night? Are you having a polyphasic sleep? Are you napping during the day? So all of these things account for, for sleep disruption. So as far as the light is concerned, are you saying like we shouldn't be looking at light at all before we, you know, that like there's, there's hey, been listen, different studies. If we were about, robots, yeah, yeah <laughs> I would say that. Um, before technology existed, we would, run to a cave and the cave would be, yeah, be dark, dark. <laughs> and it would be and cold. cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a human. I'm a, I'm, I'm a human too who like, and I live in New York city, very hard to escape the lights. So what can we do? I mean, in hindsight, it would be great for you, 
for all of us to not view light past the the hours of 8 p.m. But we can do things. We can do things like minimize the light, like wearing blue light blocking glasses. I have floor lighting in my apartment and that's because I don't want the light to be on the overhead because if you have overhead lighting, it signals to the brain even more. So if you have lower, lower lighting on the floor, it's better for you. You just have the minimization of light. Oh, that's interesting. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. So then what are the, you know, you talked a little bit about the nutritional elements and that, and that was one of your pillars. So this seems like a good segue into our, that pillar. Well, yeah, because I think when it comes to nutrition, again, a very misunderstood field, apart from the obvious, refined sugar and alcohol, what else can we be doing for our brain? Well, our brain is made up of fat and water, okay? But when we see the type of fat that some of these area, that some of these neurons are coated in, it's coated in a DHA fat. So if we look at omega-3 fatty acids, we've all heard of that. It comes from, you know, fish, fatty fish, mackerel and, and sardines and salmon. It's made up of three things, EPA, DHA, and ALA. And the ALA is you get that from things like flax seeds and chia seeds. That's where a lot of the vegans are, are going to get their omega-3 from. But what we've seen is that supplementing with high dose EPA and DHA is extremely beneficial for the brain. A, it crosses the blood-brain barrier. B, you're literally coating your brain and feeding it what it's made out of. And C, it has an effect on inflammation. So it can go in and lower these inflammatory biomarkers that may be causing neural inflammation. And I am a, it is the utmost requirement for every neural athlete, we have them supplementing two grams in the morning and two grams at night. So EPA is a very big thing. So eat all the fish you can. Another thing that I absolutely love and I've started to really hone in on is ketones. Mm. Wasn't big on it, okay, because just didn't know too much about it. I recently interviewed Dr. Dom D'Agostino, um, who's sitting literally at the forefront of exogenous ketones and TBIs. Okay. And I also interviewed um, the guys at HVMN. What turns out, okay, that when it comes to exogenous ketones, these are ketones that you ingest. So we know that there's a ketogenic diet, but we can also have ketones that you can ingest. And these are the primary substrates of what your brain is fueling on. We see that you can heal a brain from injury, such as a TBI or a stroke. So when you have a stroke or a TBI, you affect an area of your brain. And the area around that is called the penumbra. And basically that area is weakened because it's like, you know, we have to go in and save the the neurons that have been lost and the ones that have just died. When you're having, when you inject patients with exogenous ketones via an IV, you're lowering or decreasing that penumbra. So you're, you're healing your brain from trauma. I thought that was interesting. So then I started looking at the research on what's ketones doing for the brain. And it is just, it is absolutely incredible to see that your brain can run on ketones alone without food. So that's another thing that I think is, is worth, you know, researching. 
in what in what capacity for the everyday person? It's interesting. I I tried the early HVM product, the ketone esters mm. that they had that tasted kind mm-hmm. of like nail polish remover. I hear that they're much better <laughs> because they're much better it, now. Yeah, that was the idea was to use them during exercise, you know, especially like the end of a very long, say you're doing a 200 mile gravel race or an Ironman or something like tour riders use them, Tour de France riders use them. But like for the everyday person, like what application do you see them having in their daily life? Appetite suppression, especially for me. Um, it's a look when you have these ketone esters. And so the, I do have the HVMM one. So I'll talk about that because that's what I know. It comes, there's 10 servings per bottle and it comes the little capsule. Okay. And that's just one serving per day, but I sip on that and I don't eat until around 1 PM every day, sometimes 12. And I sip on that and my appetite has been suppressed, but I've also got so much energy. And when I say energy, I'm talking like brain fuel. I never say that. I honestly say this as rocket fuel for the brain. My thinking is clear. I'm focused. I'm, I could sit down and I could pound out a, a three-hour review if I had to. It completely enhances my focus and my vigilance. That's really interesting. That's re- Yeah. I've got links to all of these in the bio of my Instagram, by the way, if people are probably thinking, what, what is she talking yeah, about? Yeah, no, I'll definitely put hot links. I'll definitely put clickable links in all of this. And I have been interested to try because I have heard that their new product, um, they knew that the the yeah. the taste was a, was a factor. And I have heard that it is, yeah, that it is much uh, more palatable. That's very interesting though. That is very interesting. Yeah. And I, um, I'm trying to get my father on it as well. And I think just as the natural brain aging process, why would you not want to fuel it with what we know it, it feeds off? So you know what else is interesting to me? We have, when we hear the word mitochondria, Mm-hmm. Okay. Skeletal muscle. Okay. This is all ties in, by the way. Skeletal muscle is, you know, it houses a lot of mitochondria and skeletal muscle literally is a longevity organ. Okay. When we look at those people who have lived to a hundred centenarians, we see that they have more mitochondria. We can grow mitochondria we can grow you that's called mitochondrial biogenesis and we can do this through resistance range so more muscle okay equals more mitochondria which equals a longer life it's a longevity organ but mitochondria also live in the frontal part of your brain the frontal lobe and what we see in menopausal women is that they have a decrease of mitochondria in the frontal lobe isn't that interesting it is interesting. She's looking at me. Her eyes are really wide. Well, I, I get <laughs> excited. I'm very animated. My eyes are excited. very wide. I get very excited when I hear this thing because when we hear about mitochondria, we're not even talking about mitochondria in the brain. But we are evidently, we, of course, we have mitochondria in the brain. We have neurons. Neurons are nerve cells. They're brain cells. The only difference between a neuron in the brain and the neuron in the body is neurons in the brain have dendrites. Okay. And that's what connects them with other neurons, which creates synapses. So how we have a now uh, we now have evidence that we have a lower efficacy of mitochondria in the frontal lobe and I when we think about the frontal lobe guys you need to think about the prefrontal cortex which houses it's the CEO of the brain it houses all of our cognitive functions. So we need to be doing everything we can 
to enhance our brain. And we can do that via ketone esters. And also, there's also a lot of talk about, well, ketogenic diet is hard to sustain, but ketone, you can get into ketosis via these exogenous ketones. You don't have to starve yourself and just have a high fat diet for, for three. we can now just do it. I can go and eat a bunch of carbs and just ingest these ketones and I'm in a state of ketosis. So that's great wow. too. So does, does exercise also help with those mitochondria in that, in the brain? Well, yeah. I mean, look, every time you exercise, you're, you right. know, we're recruiting energy and energy production, which happens. Yeah. So, but Another thing that helps with mitochondrial biogenesis is the use of heat and cold. And I've spoken about that. Yeah, we spoke about that offline. So let's let's talk about cold. I love the cold. I have an ice bath here in um, Australia. God, I hate I it, have- but I want to have to love it. I'm going to have to love it. Do I have to love it? You've got to love it. Okay. I've had literal. I've had literal family arguments. To, because I put my my put my parents in the cold bath, um, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, so what happens is when we get into cold, okay. So many things happen. First of all, any type of stress is good. Stress over long term, which is like chronic stress, is not good. But we need to stress our bodies. It's called hormesis, which is pretty much. Um, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. We know that with our bodies, if we go and work out, we're going to create stress and grow bigger muscles in hindsight. We need to do that for our mitochondria. Okay. We're not, we're not stressing the mitochondria because when we stress them, we grow more because it's like, oh my God, we need to grow more to sustain this. How do we stress it? We stress it through fasting, calorie restriction, exercise. We also stress it through cold. So what happens is when you get into a cold bath, you get a massive release of A, cold shock proteins. We've also got heat shock proteins. We also get a massive release of this neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. Okay, It's also a hormone when it acts in the body, um, noradrenaline, but in the brain, okay, it's a neurotransmitter. When this is released, it's responsible for vigilance okay, and focus. When you get into the cold bath, you get an almost, I I believe it's a 270% rapid release of norepinephrine. And this is wild. So getting into the cold is not only good for your brain, it's also good for your body, decreasing inflammation, Okay, decreasing neural inflammation, body inflammation, you get a rapid release of these hormones. So, so much is happening during that process. And you only really need to do it for like two minutes a day. I, I can do I can do that. I can do that. It also um, is good for your adipose tissue, right? Your fat tissue, doesn't it do a browning of the... Well, yeah, it's... Um, So we've got brown fat and we've got white fat. So this recruits, yeah, it recruits the brown fat. So it's, it's much better than, you know, going, you know, I always say, if you've got that stubborn fat at the end, you know, how you've someone, you know, a lot of women always have that last five pounds or six pounds to lose, or you've got the stomach, the stubborn fat around the stomach, it'd be worth getting into the, um, into the cold bath. And is heat at all, like, you know, you hear a lot about sauna, right? So on the other side of the spectrum, 
where what happens there? Well, same kind of thing happens, but this is more the, the cardiovascular effects. So getting into, you know, the heat shock proteins actually have more of a beneficial effect on the cardiovascular system. So it turns out that you can mimic the effects of uh, a long endurance sport, such as let's just say 60 minutes of cardio. You can mimic that by getting into a sauna. Right. So you've got, yeah, you've got those, but you've also got a direct effect on depression. It turns out I uh, I interviewed, um, uh, I know his first name is Charles. I, I've lost train of thought, but he's done one of the best studies on heat shock proteins and depressive patients. And what he found was that getting into a sauna can actually mimic the effects of an SSRI like Prozac. Wow. So yeah, he's gotten patients off um, SSRIs by just using using the sauna. Wow, this is um, this has all been amazing. Are there are there other interventions we haven't talked about that you wanted to include here? Um, look, I'd be uh, I'd kick myself if I didn't talk about neuroathletics, which is our not just our company, but um, it's our proprietary brain training activity. Okay. So what I didn't mention was when it comes to physical activity, we've got the aerobic, we've got the resistance training. We also have neuromotor, which is literally how can we do weights for our brain? And neuroathletics is literally doing resistance training for your brain. So an easy way to put this for everybody, all of your listeners is all you need to do is get two tennis balls. Okay. And just start working on hand-eye coordination, start throwing the ball to the wall, start doing one-legged drills, like stand on one leg, throw the ball to the wall. What you're doing is you're activating different areas of the brain that you don't usually use. Like who thinks to themselves, hand-eye coordination. So the more times you're using these open skilled kind of workouts, the better your brain is going to adapt to them. That's great. So that, that is that is a, another level of quote unquote, like brain training, right? I mean, you, when people think brain training, they often think, oh, I'm like my dad does his crossword puzzles, right? Like that's, that's, <laughs> that's but, his thing. But, but this is, this is another. This is, yeah. This is much more intense. Right. And it adds that connectivity piece that we talked about, like bringing it, bringing, cause sometimes I feel like we treat our brain, like it's this thing floating on top of our body, as opposed to this integrative system, you know, like that you started this conversation talking about. It is, it is everything The, you know, that's what you and I share in common. That's what everybody listening, we all share the human nervous system in common. And when you realize that it is responsible for everything you are, everything you're ever going to be and where you are today, I always say that you are where you are today as a result of how well your brain is performing. And by taking the advice that we've given people today, we can be in a better place tomorrow. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And everything comes with a, a, a medical disclaimer, especially when it comes to the, um, the supplementation. I wouldn't mm. you know, advise anybody add in or, or, or take out anything out of their diet without talking to their physician. But we do have access now. And I just want everybody to know that fear is something that you shouldn't exist because we have so much information now, but it's about accessing the right information and then acting on that information. I want to thank you so much for your time. I mean, so this is, you've been amazing. Celine, thank you so much for having me. 
Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down and talk obstacle course racing with Laura McElduff, who credits OCR racing with getting her through the toughest parts of the menopause transition. I was super inspired by this one. So come on back for that. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.